I'm Dr. Kimberly Manning. And this is Dr. Ashley McMullen. And you're listening to the Human Doctor Podcast, where we explore the human side of medicine, along with teaching, living, learning, and all things in between. Using the power of storytelling, conversation, and connectedness. Hey, we're two dope academic internal medicine doctors, but we ain't your doctors. So if you perceive anything we say here as medical advice, no, it ain't that. Also, the things we say, they only reflect our brilliant black woman magic mind and not our employers. You could have been anywhere, y'all, but you chose to be here with us and we appreciate you. Let's Let's go. I wish I could screenshot your video right now and like put it out there for our listeners. Oh, do tell. What what is it that is so exciting about? This is the first time I am seeing you in the bedroom of your oldest son. That's true. And it is a very neat room. I'm actually quite impressed. The bed is made. All the built-in shelves are like nicely stocked. Before anybody gets the the wrong impression that my child's bedroom is normally neat, (laughs) uh, you know that um, he happens to be away on a college tour. And for that reason, his nice and neat room was left that way when he left. So I I do give him props for that, but kind of a, a, a bittersweet moment for a mother child is old enough to be sending selfie photos from a Howard university football game and Mm. snapshots from Hampton university and all these places. So it's a, it's, it's a, a touching moment. And I'm glad to be sitting in his room, even though he would throw me out if he were here. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. Well, sis, how was your weekend? Uh, My weekend was absolutely extraordinary. Mm. On a scale of one to 10, it was a 13. Oh, okay. Well, I know where the 13 might be coming from, but (laughs) it's still off the charts. Yes, ma'am. As you already know from me telling you ad nauseum is that our, the national convention of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated happened to be in Atlanta, Georgia from the 19th through it ends actually tomorrow. And it was really exciting for it to be in person. Um, Every measure was taken to make sure it was safe. And it was really amazing to see how hard everybody worked to see that happen. And, um, you know, one of my favorite aspects of my sorority is just the fellowship component. Mm -hmm. And just seeing like my sorority sisters who are rolling by in their, you know, rolling wheelchairs who are like 90 years old, and then running into, you know, a collegiate sorority sister who's at Tuskegee right now and who's, you know, bright eyed and just pledged, you know, (laughs) it is just the gift that keeps on giving. It was really nourishing for my soul. Yes. I love that. I think I spent a lot of the weekend just kind of contemplating things that are (laughs) nourishing for the soul. Yeah. And, um, you know, even when you have a clear schedule, like rest is hard to achieve. At least that's what I was attempting to do on Saturday. Yeah. It's harder to shut my brain down with everything that had been happening in the news cycles, but mm-hmm. particularly, you know, just to, to comment on the verdicts for, for Kyle Rittenhouse. Yeah. I don't know how you received that. I was, you know, on my way to another meeting and I just saw it flash on my phone, acquitted of all charges. Yeah. And I'll say for myself, like I had no interest in seeing a teenage boy go behind bars for life for capital murder. Sure. 
But, you know, the message that you send to say there's absolutely nothing wrong with picking up a rifle and going across state lines to a potentially volatile situation and then discharging that firearm to kill two individuals to say that that's okay. Like there's absolutely no repercussions for that when there's very blatant, harsh penalties leveled out for other folks that don't even come close to that level of behavior is, it, it, it was painful. Yeah. I think that was probably part of the reason why I was so glad I was in the presence of so many Deltas, you know, social action is, is, pretty much the the bedrock of the organization and injustice and sort of being out in front in, in times like this. And so I was glad as I received that, that news to fold into people who are fighting the good fight. You know, I'm a mother of two teen sons. And you know, what I know for certain is that my son at 16, were he even to come close to something like that, this would be a very different outcome. And it just is so. You know, regardless of what people's political views are, this isn't even a political statement. It's like, you know, they say in legalese, res ipsa loquitur, the thing speaks for itself. Mm. You know, the thing speaks for itself. And if you don't like the movement of BLM or Black Lives Matter, if you don't like how that feels or the tone of it, that's cool. Um, But the thing speaks for itself. Mm -hmm. We know for sure that if Kyle had been Chiron from the South side of Chicago, and if all things being the same, he had done what he'd done, um, this would, this would have been a short thing that probably wouldn't have even made it to the news. Yeah. And that, that is a, that is a sad reality. So, you know, again, as I was getting my son ready to go on this college tour, I'm having to basically throw a wet blanket over it by, by re-giving him the talk, you know, yeah, okay, yeah. listen. So if this happens, so listen, I know you're going to be having fun. You're going to be with other teenagers, but listen, just kind of a, a reminder of, of who you are in the context of who the world believes you are. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I, and I like that the sensitivity with which you said, I don't like the thought of some young person being locked away for the rest of their life. I, I'm not rooting for that for anybody's mother to have to endure. Um, but that being said, there's just such inequity in how things are handed out that it's hurtful. Mm -hmm. It's hurtful to look at. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I um, I mean, obviously didn't go to the Delta convention this weekend, although I like to have lived vicariously through you, (laughs) but I did watch this Netflix documentary called in our mother's gardens. I'm not familiar. What's that? Yeah, it's it's kind of a, a riff off of a book by Alice Walker, which I didn't I didn't read, so I don't know how how much it's contextualized, but by the same title. And something that I would encourage everybody to watch, because I think, you know, it it of course speaks to my heart because they interview several prominent black women just to share stories about their mothers and grandmothers. Mm. And there's so many black stories that feel very weighted down by Mm -hmm. the trauma of the black experience. Mm -hmm. However, this was a documentary that left me feeling uplifted and nourished in my soul. So Mm. Mm. one of the things that they quoted in there, which I think may have been from the nap ministry. I don't remember, but one of the things that stood out was, the statement that rest is reparations. Wow. Yeah. Wow. There's a second part to that quote that says, so lay your ass down, sis. But 
<laughs> you know, for all the <laughs> for all the injustice and all the inability of you know our ancestors and many of, of our folks who embody a lot of identities that have been historically oppressed. Rest was never a given. Yeah. So when you take it, you know, consider that some repayment, however mm-hmm. small. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny. I'm I'm on um I'm on vacation this week, and I I have typically not been very good at at true rest, like the rest where you shut your brain off and don't do a whole lot of work related things. And I I love that, that, that sentiment of rest Mm -hmm. is reparations. It is. It's a gift to yourself. Amen. Well, my friend, we have a lucky week for our listeners because Grady Doc is telling the story <laughs> for this episode. But you already know there are people out there who are like, this is a bye week. <laughs> okay. Well, for that one person who exists out there, thank you for your loyalties. Yeah. Okay. So I have a story. What's, what's the what? The what is value. Value. Okay. I don't know if that's a word we've used yet. Might it's not, we have not used value before. So check it. I think I was um, in my second year of residency. And as you know, I did a MedPeds residency. And at that time, our, our requirement for our residency requirements called for us to do three full months in the emergency department. And um, this was my second month that I'd ever done in the emergency department. And the first month I'd done, I got to know a lot of the staff down. We had a level one trauma center in Cleveland where I was knew a lot of people. And I had kind of, you know, I was an efficient resident. I was going after it. And, you know, this was maybe about a week or two into that month, my second time being there. And um, it was very, very, very busy. And one of the things that happened the very first time I was in the emergency department was that I came to clearly know that there were nurses down there in the emergency department that like really ran the show that had been down there for a long time. You did not cross their path. There was one in particular, um, we used to call her Buffy the intern slayer. (laughs) (laughs) She used to be going in on interns and technically I was still an intern because for MedPeds, you, your internship was 18 months. Yeah. So I was there. That was my second month. I was there as an intern and for whatever reason, and I do think I know the reason um, this, this nurse was not a great fan of, of me mm. and was probably mostly because I was regarded fairly positively by the faculty. They gave me a little autonomy. They would kind of listen to my plans and I tried my best to assert myself. Pause for a second. Zachary, hold it down. I'm recording something. That's definitely going to be included in the podcast. <laughs> That's awesome. (laughs) All right. So I I think that, you know, she was a person who liked to be in control and um, you wouldn't fall in line. Yeah. And I, and I wouldn't really fall in line, but also she also seemed to be very keen on the male physicians that were there. Yeah. And she and I did not have um, racial concordance. She was older than me. So when I would ask her things, she would either not do what I asked her to do, or she would be very short with me. And it was kind of frustrating, mm-hmm. but I would just kind of keep it moving because those shifts were 12 hour shifts and, I, and ain't nobody got time for all that. 
So this one day the emergency department was jumping and I went and saw this, this man who unfortunately, I think he probably had a balanitis or like some type of inflammation on his um, penis and was having difficulty retracting his foreskin. He was an uncircumcised gentleman. He was experiencing homelessness. Hygiene definitely was a piece of the issue, but he was miserable. Mm. And um, he really, really wanted help. It was cold in Cleveland at the time. And we were seeing our fair share of people experiencing homelessness who probably, you know, weren't that sick, who who wanted to be in from the cold. But that was not the case with this this gentleman. He also had some some pain over his bladder and had a bit of a low grade temperature. And I was just like concerned about him. So I tried um, my best to to get a good look. And I was like, we really need some urine and I'm going to need somebody to do a straight catheterization on him. Mm. So I go over to my attending physician and I tell my attending physician about the patient and my attending who at this point, trusts me says, sounds like a really good plan. Go ahead and put the order in. I'll go by and see him after you get the result of the urine. I said, cool. I put in the order and this is back in the day of paper charts. So you wrote the order on the paper chart and you put it in this basket. And she was covering the rooms that I was covering. And so Buffy, the intern slayer goes over and looks at the chart, sits it to the side and looks at me and says, I'm not doing a straight cat on that guy. He's just trying to get in from the cold. And I was like, yeah, you know, I, it's definitely cold. And he's definitely somebody who has been living outside, but he needs a straight cath. And I, I spoke to, I spoke to the attending about it. And, and so she was just like, yeah, nah, she, and she shook her head and kind of walked off. So I picked the chart back up and I sit it back in the basket for her to do the order. I go on and see another patient. I come back out. I present that patient to my attending and he says, Hey, what happened to the gent with the bladder pain? And I said, I'm still trying to get him straight cath. He's like, Oh, they didn't do it yet. And I was like, no, you know, I'm still trying to get the order to be picked up. He's like, what? He looks and it's still sitting there in the basket. So he goes over to Buffy, air quotes, and says, hey, I need you to go and do this straight cath. And, you know, she'd been working down in an emergency department for a long time. So she's at the point where she lets the attendings know what she thinks, you know, and she's mm-hmm. like, come on, you know, this patient is trying his best to drag this out so that he does not have to go back outside. And he's like, yeah, but uh, Kimberly says that he can't even retract his foreskin and that he's having a really rough time. And I don't want us to call urology until we've tried, at least tried the straight cath, because she says she lo- it looks like we could probably straight cath him. She gives the biggest eye roll ever. And he said, come on, I just need you to go ahead and do it. Now, of course, she's fond of this attending. So right. of course, she, she ain't coming for him. <laughs> and she huffs off with the chart. I didn't even see what happened when she went in the patient's room, but I do know she went in there, got the materials and went to go do the straight catheterization. And, you know, a piece of me does wonder, like, was she mean to him? Was she, I don't know, Mm. but I have now moved on with the other patient and I'm standing there writing on another paper chart. Cause again, I am a vintage (laughs) doctor. (laughs) And this woman comes walking out of the room. And I see her walking very rapidly in my direction. She is holding a hazardous materials bag in her hand. It has been sealed shut. And inside of it is a little container of murky looking urine with an outstretched hand. She holds this hazard bag toward my face and nearly, nearly, very nearly grazes my nose with it. But girl, and she says, 
I got your magical urine. Are you happy now? She spins on her foot and marches away toward the vacuum chute, which also is evidence of the fact that I'm a vintage doctor. So now, as you know, you can take the girl out of Inglewood, but you cannot take the Inglewood out of the girl. Mm -mm. So every bit of Inglewood, California, double dutching on the corner, break dancing, pop locking, fighting at 3 p.m. after school came out of me. I was on her. I was walking behind her as fast as she was walking away from me. I got into her face and I, I, I mean, honestly, I was about to, I was about to probably lose my job <laughs> <laughs> because I realized in that moment, she didn't value my expertise. She did not value me as a doctor. She didn't value my patient. She did value the attending who mm-hmm. told her to do it. And he was a white man. Um, and again, I, I, I can't racialize her reasons for it, but I, but what I witnessed again, rest ipsa loquitur, the thing speaks for itself. She treated the people who were white men differently than how she treated me and people like me. And so I went over to her and I said, and I am not proud of this. (laughs) Y'all please don't judge me, but I'm going to be honest. I said, I will beat your ass right here in this emergency department. Did you just stick urine near my face? You got me confused. You got me all the way confused. I don't know who you think I am, but, and I, and immediately I noticed that she looked afraid. She looked afraid of me. She probably should have been afraid of me in that moment. Mm-hmm. That same really nice attending that she liked and that I liked too. I just felt his hand gently on my shoulder. He's like, Hey, Kimberly, let's talk for a moment. You know, he pulled me to the side and he kind of just talked to me a little bit about people and how the thing that I can control is me. Mm. I can't control people. Um, I can control me. This moment is calling for me to control me. And really in a way, what he was trying to tell me and teach me is that I need to value me enough to not let somebody else assign value to me. Mm. You know? I need to assign value to me. And if, if I believe that I am as great as my mama and my daddy told me I was, somebody like me, who believes I am who I am, I shouldn't be somewhere getting ready to have a fist fight in an emergency department. What she did was, was really, really, really inappropriate. And I do know that if I had done that to her as a black woman down in that emergency department back in 1997 in Cleveland, Ohio, I would have been kicked out of my residency program. I know nobody would have been forgiving of me. Nobody would have put a soft hand on her shoulder. Um, None of that. It, it would have been much, much, much different. And um, he didn't bring any of that into it, but he just said, you need to control you. You can't control nobody else down here. And then just pause for a few moments to, to ask yourself, why would somebody do something like that? It's probably somebody who doesn't feel good about themselves. Yeah. And you feel good about yourself. So don't, don't let anybody reduce you to something that you aren't. Now, again, in my head at this point, all I'm thinking is she held a bag of cloudy urine next to my face. Mm-hmm. I mean, turns out that patient, he was zero, he had zero sepsis. Urology had to come in. He required you know, intravenous antibiotics. He was hospitalized. 
it was not a soft call. It was the right you know, thing to do. Um, he was miserable. And I'm really glad that he got the care that he deserved. But you know, that was years ago. And I wish I could say that there wasn't still like evidence popping up all the time in my life of how somebody's um, idea of my value compared to somebody else's value, even in a professional environment, even after all these years and all this time, it still shows up and the thing speaks for itself. Yeah. My mom has actually given me that exact same advice, not the same words, but really just don't let another person pull you out of your character. But at the same time, it's just so exhausting to have to be the ones to hold it together. Yeah. And to take the high road. I mean, Mm -hmm. uh, this, this whole thing about value, you know, reason I was pausing when I got ready to tell the story is just that I just find myself thinking about this word so much like value. You know, as I get more senior and I build a national reputation more, more people ask me to do things. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm fortunate that sometimes people ask me to do things and I think they have a sense that time is not a renewable resource and that there should be a monetary value placed on people's time and effort, particularly when they're at a certain stage in their career. And I know for sure that sometimes especially in medicine and academic medicine, that sometimes people will ask of me things that I know for sure that if I were somebody else who probably shares more with that attending who put the hand on my shoulder than who I am, that they wouldn't be asking me to do this thing or that thing or this much or that much without really thinking about the value Mm -hmm. that should come with that. Yeah. So then people like me are placed in this awkward position where you have to tell the person your value, which goes back to what you just said about how it's frustrating to have to be the one to do the awkward thing or to take the high road. So I'm really working hard on knowing what my value is, both in the sort of global sense Mm -hmm. in terms of my behaviors, but also just concretely what my value is. And I'm hoping that as I work to do that more, that I will permit other Black women and women to know their value too, again, both in the broad sense, but in the straight up concrete sense. Well, as a member of the other Black women who are following in your footsteps, (sighs) that is so real. I think one of my favorite pieces of advice that you gave me, which I've heard before, but you just contextualize it differently, verbal affirmations. And I started paying attention to the things that were going through my head on a regular basis of, oh, you messed that up. Like, you're not good enough. They don't want you to really do this. They're just emailing you because they couldn't get Dr. Manning. Like, when you are constantly viewing yourself through the lens of a society that is perpetually downgrading your value, you have to really tell yourself differently. Yeah, because the the counter language gets loud, right? the more you get into practice of self-affirmation and, and, and starting to like tease out who you are. I also know that I do not come from historic privilege. I, I, I just think a lot about value and, and how value looks and, and, and how our patients even value gets placed upon them. You know, that mm-hmm. if that man had been some really affluent elder in the Cleveland community who had difficulty retracting his his foreskin and pain and a low-grade temperature and who wasn't a 
an old black man experiencing homelessness, it would probably have been, you know, different. hundred percent. One of the best parts of the story is that he told me to control myself. Mm-hmm. And I realized that I was anxious in her presence and I was kind of second guessing myself and a little bit shaky around her. And once I started really thinking about that, I was competent and that, you know, I was really trying to be patient centered and I needed to stop playing off of her energy Mm. and stop trying to enter the space. Like this was some type of competition or contentious thing. Yeah. We got cool. Oh, wow. Yeah. We ended up getting cool. Even after I I almost scared her to death, but (laughs) we, we, we end up getting cool. And then by the time I was a fourth year med Pete's resident, I remember that I would say to her, I was like, man, that day when I was down here back in the day, I, I mean, for real, I was about to lose my job. I was about to fight you that day. She was like, and, and you know, and, and once we got cool, she was like, you know, I was really not in a good place then. Mm-hmm. I was just really, really, really tired. I was going through a divorce you know, I, it was a lot being put on me because I was like the, a clinical manager, but also working clinically. And I, and, you know, and I really should have either been a clinical manager or, you know, a staff nurse, but I was having to do both and people were calling off and it was just, I was just spent and I was so tired and that was terrible. And, and again, you know, back then it never even occurred to me to think about, you know, where, where this person was or why she would do what she did, but um, we ended up getting really cool. I think the coolness we developed was because I started to control me better. I mean, I would drop the mic right now for you, but it's a little too expensive, but what a word, like to me, that represents justice, which is what we all want, but we get so sidetracked by the emotions and the negativity that, you know, we confuse vengeance for justice. And I don't think that slapping that woman around, although it probably would have felt good in the moment, (laughs) would have achieved justice. So I love that story. Um, Like clocked her and been like, this is for all the interns you slayed in the past. Sis, pop out. (laughs) We do not condone violence on this podcast. We sure do not. We do not. (laughs) Not even if your hands are from Inglewood. (laughs) That's right. Yeah, don't don't let the smooth knuckles fool you. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, going back to um, the things in our lives that are spiritually nourishing, I think all my conversations with you have left me in that place of fullness. So thank you. You know, I appreciate you, sis. I love you so much. And even if you did not tell me that our conversations nourish your soul, Res ipsa loquitur, the thing Mm. speaks for itself. So um, a lot of value is in what you feel, how people talk to you, how they see you, how they interact with you. And um, though I do receive those words, I know already. I love it. I love you. And I love you more, sis. Holla. That wraps up this week's episode of the Human Doctor Podcast. Special thanks to our favorite brother gastroenterologist, Dr. Chuma Obiname for the beats. Shout out to the Dr. Ashley McMullen for editing and production 
Mad love to our podcast family at The Nocturnist and The Clinical Problem Solvers, our Med Twitter fam, and especially shout out to all of you, our listeners. Until next week, remember, we see you and you are enough. Holla! Holla.